You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, it's upon us. The UFC 200 Fight Week half begun. International Fight Week, you mean? Hashtag International Fight Week. Even as we record this, the open workouts for Joanna uh, Yedjechik and... Go ahead. I know you love to say it. Claudia Gadelia. Are, are underway. They're, they're happening as we speak. I was watching uh, Champy lighten up the pads on Periscope like five minutes before you got here. Well, buckle in. It begins. Are they doing, uh, didn't they do bands? Like a, uh, some kind of lineup of, of music last year during International Fight Week with like yeah. Papa Roach. Yeah, and, it was uh, hilariously like just lifted straight out of 2004. It was like someone went out to Dana White's car and, and got his CD book. Off the floor, off the front floorboard. You know he has and a like CD visor. Through. He got a CD visor clipped to the the the, the well, little visor. Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to be scrounging around on the floorboards for your CD book while you're you're rolling through Vegas traffic jam midday. You know. Yeah, I mean, no. If you're if you're a bellman at the Venetian, maybe you got your CD strewn around the fl- the floor of the car like some slob. If you're the president of a mixed martial arts fighting promotion, you got your shit tight. Yeah, that sounds like a good way to crash the Ferrari if you're <laughs> down there looking for your CD book. You're trying to get your Papa Roach out, trying to listen to some 311, and next thing you know, bam, rear end some housewife. Yeah, that's trouble. Well, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is once again brought to you by Jimster. Jimster is the all-in-one health and fitness app for iOS and Android. With over 400 exercises, with instructional GIFs, 70 pieces of equipment, and 140 recipes to choose from, Jimster has everything you need to exercise and enjoy a well-balanced diet. You can add equipment to a gym preset, save it for quick and easy access at a later, at a later date, store multiple gym presets such as your local gym, your home, your garage, or even a preset for those time when you ha- those times when you have no workout equipment available to you. Yeah, the app was created by Mark Runza, who has been a co-main event pilot podcast guy from day one so we encourage you to check out gymster today one cool feature of the app is it allows you to choose between manual selection mode and randomized mode and with randomized mode you simply select the amount of exercises you want to perform the muscle group or groups you want to target then select your gym gymster will do the rest returning a fresh and exciting new routine to keep you coming back for more you can log your workout to keep track of how you're performing at the gym also is your favorite exercise or piece of equipment missing from the app Contact the Gymster guys and they will add it within 24 hours. New exercises and recipes are added weekly, so basically you get a constantly updating app for just $2.99. Also new to Gymster for Android this week, organize recipes in order of calories, protein, fat, carbs, price, or time. That's Gymster, available at your favorite app store for iOS and Android. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, since this is maybe the last time we'll get the chance, we promise to refer to Daniel Cormier as the UFC light heavyweight champion and John Jones as the interim champ instead of getting it wrong like we do pretty much every fucking time. In our defense, come on. 
And in round number two, if you were Dana White, wouldn't you be calling Brock Lesnar every hour on the hour to be like, hey, Brock, how's your guts? Brock, how your guts feeling? You feeling like your guts might prevent you from showing up at UFC 200 at all? Because I would. And in round number three, can you imagine being a fly on the wall for that moment when old man Frankie Edgar sets down his newspaper, adjusts his spectacles, and sees the Conor McGregor ESPN body issue? I shudder to think. All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time, Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Pretty much wall-to-wall UFC 200 listener mail this week. That's not a shock to anybody. First piece comes from Matt Webb. He writes, So Sage Northcut is 1-1 one one in the UFC and has been officially signed by Reebok. He also is the only fighter who is on the UFC 200 card where you tilt your head at because it's, clear, it's a clear push from the UFC. Besides, of course, his opponent, Enrique Martin, who fought in a promotion called Only Men Stuff. Nice. So discourse is blatant Sage Northcut favoritism if you don't mind hashtag red white and fight week are they doing that again or is that <laughs> no, just from I, I think they realized that that one didn't quite make enough sense last yeah, time that didn't that didn't turn into an internet sensation kudos to matt webb for, for bringing that one out of the time machine for us though. indeed uh but i mean we're not saying anything that that nobody that that people don't already know here right with it sage northcutt's got the keys to the castle and not necessarily because he has proved himself to be super awesome at fighting thus far does it not seem like sage northcutt i mean i know you made the argument a long time ago that he was totally crafting this eddie haskell persona on purpose and at least partially well now it seems like he's he's engaged in a little bit of a heel turn have you noticed that recently? First, there was the thing about the whole sparring video thing where he goes out there and he and he blasts the, the kickboxing guy talking about how he sucks and was making a bunch of excuses for why he didn't want to spar hard. Uh, and then I saw him, I, I think, on the Fortnite talking about how if he hadn't been sick uh, when he fought Brian Barberina, he would have won that fight easily. And it's kind of like, I can't tell if... That is a conscious move on his part to kind of because you're you're doing a lot of things there that MMA fans have come to regard as like a villain type move. Yeah, it's the old uh, I would have won if I hadn't totally lost, <laughs> yes. which I like to call the Vitor Belfort uh, post UFC 126 when he was like, "Oh man, I was just warming up to totally beat Anderson Silva, and if he hadn't front kicked me in the face in one of the greatest highlight reel knockouts in the history of the sport." I probably would have won that shit. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Maybe Sage Northcutt is. Uh, maybe he does know what he's doing a little bit here. I, I defer to your judgment on all things Sage Northcutt because you are the co-main event podcast's Sage Northcutt beat reporter. Oh, no. You, you have just been infatuated with Sage Northcutt since the moment he showed up on the scene. Well, that's overstating it. And so uh, I'm, I'm, good with, I'm good with letting you set the podcast's policy. On well, Sage Northcutt. You know, until further notice, when, when I have to step in, when cooler heads must prevail. Okay. For, for the guy who's not even the Sage Northcutt correspondent, you're doing an awful lot of talking about Super Sage. I'm here. just trying to tee you up so you can get your rocks off. <laughs> to, the, to the question here from Matt Webb, uh, again, like you said, the blatant favoritism of Sage Northcutt by the UFC seems like no surprise anymore. And it seems like it's it's been so uh, obvious and we've kind of noticed it. Took note of it, moved on, and it doesn't really seem like it generates a whole lot of outrage anymore. It is interesting, though, because it seems like if you're Sage Northcutt and you want to continue to be the guy who 
people are paying attention to for at least some of the right reasons, you gotta win this fight. Yeah, when you're fighting Enrique Martin, the only man on the UFC 200 fight card that does not have a Wikipedia page. Other than this, it's like blockbuster matchups from top to bottom, and then you got Sage Northcutt against Enrique Martin staring you in the face as the curtain jerker on Fox Sports 1. Uh, kind of a kind of like a sore thumb sticking out there. I always think it's interesting when we make a big deal, or when we see these news reports anyway, making a big deal about a fighter signing with Reebok. Because it's always like, I mean, I guess that a fighter could sign elsewhere as long as that company was okay with the fighter not ever being able to wear their gear. There's a couple of fighters who have deals like that. I know Luke Rockhold's got the Adidas thing, right? But it's, and, and frankly, that's awesome and works for Luke Rockhold. But I mean, if you're one of these apparel companies, you got to be, you got to be pretty into that fighter to, to sign them to like an endorsement deal when you know that they can't wear any of your stuff at the time when people are actually going to see them. Yeah, true. Um, yeah, but I mean, it does, I think you can kind of draw a direct line between who are, who are Reebok's people and who are the UFC's people. There, there is a lot of overlap. The Venn diagram of those two things is just one circle. So I, I think that that's why people make a big deal out of it. Uh, but I think that this will be at least, you know, the next step and what it seemed to be like, I think the thing that's fascinating about Sage Northcutt, since you say I've been fascinated by him since he showed up. Infatuated. The thing that's fascinating about it is it seems like a a weird little experiment on the UFC's part to basically decide in advance, this guy's going to be big, this guy's going to be a star, we're going to make him a star by telling everybody what a star he is before we really know if he can do it as an athlete, before we really know if he can fight. Um, and we we see you know kind of the next step in that. And you know we said you got to win the fight. You also probably got to come out there and look pretty good if you're Sage Northcutt. I mean, you're not going to shut up all the haters no matter what you do. Uh, but it does seem like a super high-pressure fight for him. Whereas, meanwhile, for Enrique Martin, hey, man, worst-case scenario, you'll probably get a Wikipedia page out of this whole thing. You're on UFC 200. Yeah, and it's, you know, we shouldn't be too hard on Super Sage Northcutt after all the kid's only 20 years old. Just turned 20 back in March. How much of this uh, push, though, do you do you think? I mean, clearly they think that that he's got a little charisma there and that has the chance to be a star in fact you know could be a a wonder boy thompson type figure with his very traditional martial arts background and and, he could actually be called wonder boy that's right he could be the wonder boy to to uh what stephen thompson's wonder man you know right down to the close relationship with his his martial arts coach father there you go but how much of this do you think if any is stubbornness in that north cut was discovered by dana white on looking for a fight do you think that that plays into this at all? That's sort of like one of the reasons that Northcutt is their guy is that he got, I mean, almost literally handpicked by the UFC president. Yeah, uh, that's definitely part of it. Uh, and it's also, you know, part of the the backlash against him. I don't think that the backlash such as it exists, I don't think it really has much to do with Sage Northcutt himself. He seems like a nice dude. I think it's all that. I think some of it has to do with well, Sage some Northcutt of it, sure. Himself, uh, but it's mostly like everybody saying, "Okay, this guy seems to have been chosen as teacher's pet." I think that's what you see from other fighters. Other fighters don't seem like they're responding so much to his personality or his fighting skills that much as it seems like, "Hey, this guy just got chosen for preferential treatment, and I've been here slugging it out and bleeding for every cent for years." Right. Um, so I think that's 
kind of what that's about. I wonder what's the overall record for Dana White's looking for a fight, guys. It doesn't seem like I'm, it's too stellar so far. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm unfamiliar. I couldn't produce a name, a list of names of them for you besides Sage Northcutt and then Mickey Gall. Right? It was also a looking for a fight guy. Aside yeah. from that, I don't I don't know who we're talking about there. That's it could be anyone. There's that other guy. I don't know his name. I think he lost. There you go. There you that's go. my statistical Very analysis. Dis- that's descriptive. Uh, next question this week comes from David Wood. He writes, is it just me or does it seem as though in a card that is stacked like a can of Cool Ranch Pringles that the potential heavyweight title eliminator matchup between, quote, at sea level Kane Velasquez and Travis, quote, my new thing is crying during my interviews, Brown, is being vastly overlooked. While this is the only one, uh, while this is only one of two non-title fights on the main card of UFC 200, it's still a fight with huge implications in the heavyweight division, and more importantly, will determine the trajectory of each fighter's career and legacy, and no one seems to be talking about it. Please discourse. I kind of agree. Yeah. It kind of feels like Velasquez versus Brown is slipping through the cracks a little bit just because of the magnitude of the event, obviously, and because it's, it's you know, it may as well be the only card on the or the only fight on the main card that's not for a title because the other fight that's not for a title is Brock Lesnar, who's, you know, fighting for his own title all the time. By yeah. the way, did you see the, the, the promo video of him roll out in the, in the Reebok shorts? I did. It's weird. Still, yeah, Reebok shorts even making Brock Lesnar look a little weird. <laughs> well, I think, though, one of the reasons we – and we talked about this the last time during International Fight Week where the UFC does three events in three days. Uh, some stuff has to just get buried by the, the sheer magnitude of all the stuff that's going on and the, the, the amount of it all. Like, it's hard to keep it all in your head at the same time. Uh, you're thinking, especially with so many title fights, there's only so much promotional hype to go around. And you kind of forget that some of these fights are even happening um, until somebody like David Wood writes you a, a very well-worded email comparing it, the whole card to a can of Cool Ranch Pringles, which is a pretty sweet move. Um, but it's also one of those fights where it seems like we're totally going to forget it and look at look past it the entire way and then we'll get there and you know 10 minutes before they get in the cage you'll be like oh shit this is going to be awesome uh i don't really worry about the result being overlooked i think it's just that we're kind of forgetting to talk about it with all the other crap we have to talk about in advance of these three events yeah no matter what happens in this fight it's going to create a a storyline in the heavyweight division uh and maybe a storyline that we need in the heavyweight division this is a fight between this is that rare fight between two heavyweights neither of whom uh, are past their prime, as far as we know, up to this point. Although I think all eyes may be on Cain Velasquez to see if he is able to come out and look like the world beater that he was supposed to be for so many years before his career was uh, waylaid by injury, I guess you could say. He's going off as almost a 3-1 to one favorite here over Travis Brown. Wow. Uh, who is, is and in fact, more than a 3-1 to one favorite at, at a couple of uh, odds maker websites. Uh and Travis Brown, I guess, comes in carrying the baggage of training down there in Glendale uh, with Ronda's people. And uh, and that is not a, a particularly popular place to be right now from, from the outside looking in. Uh, so um, it's almost like there is a lot to prove on that side of the cage, too. Like Cain Velasquez has to come out and prove that he is still the guy that we expect Cain Velasquez to be. Travis Brown has to prove that... Uh, that it's not a, just a terrible move to go down there and train in Glendale. Yeah. Well, and if you had to choose who you think had probably the better training camp, Cain Velasquez, with, when he and Daniel Cormier are simultaneously preparing uh, to fight on the same night, 
or Travis Brown uh, out there, as you said, with, with Ronda's peoples. Um, as long as you don't get hurt at AKA, it seems like an awesome camp. Uh, and that has been kind of the knock on Cain Velasquez's career there is how often he's been injured. But, you know, here we are. I, I hate to jinx it by saying that it looks like we're in the clear now, but it does seem that way. Um, I, I would have to say that it, I would pick Cain Velasquez to win this one, but it does surprise me that he's that much of a favorite because Travis Brown is just a big dude who can hit you at any time and, and knock you out. And, man, we've seen, we've seen heavyweight fights in the UFC before. We know how this shit goes. That's true. We should not be surprised with uh, with with the way this stuff tr- typically transpires. And Travis Brown is not even really that far removed from the from being thirteen and zero and being a a, a big time up and comer in the UFC. And then he lost that fight to Bigfoot Silva, where uh, Travis Brown like tore his hamstring throwing a spinning kick right in the in the in the first round of the fight. And since then, uh, he's five and two, though he has the losses to uh, Fabricio Verdum and then Andre Arlovsky. Uh, although again, heavyweight fight, even that one yeah, could have gone either way. He looked like he was just getting ready to win it right when he lost. <laughs> Too bad he had lost. He might've, he might've won Vitor Belfort style. Uh, next question comes from Dwayne Transel who writes, does it matter if Nunez beats Tate for the women's bantamweight title? Or does it just make Ronda's return path to that belt that much easier without really ruining Misha as a future opponent? I'm borderline agree, although clearly it ends the the storybook championship run of Misha Tate, who's been hanging around waiting to be UFC Women's Bantamweight Champion for for what seems like forever, and spoils either. Uh, I mean, I guess if we assume that what they do is have Ronda Rousey fight Amanda Nunes, uh, you know, maybe that that's not a. I guess the return of Ronda is going to be a big deal no matter what, assuming that it happens. And and but it wouldn't be as big a deal as her returning against Misha Tate or Holly Holm. First of all, are we saying Nunes. Nunes. That's what they said on the uh, radio ad I heard today. Well, Nunes. So you think I should just assume that that's wrong? Didn't what else? Didn't they also say Heenan Barrio on the radio? That's true. Ad? They did. Yeah. yeah. Okay, maybe Nunes. I don't know, but. I think what it does is it add, if if she wins and she takes the the belt off Misha Tate, I think it just adds one more person to that round robin tournament we've been talking about. It also makes it seem like in the post Ronda Rousey era, Ronda Rousey era of the UFC women's bantamweight division, everybody's kind of getting a turn with the belt. It's like nobody can really defend it. it, it that will become the storyline there, I think. But I mean, I think that uh you know, you can never say it doesn't matter if somebody wins and takes the belt from somebody else. Uh, but it does just it, – it would make that division even more capable of matching anybody up against anybody else. And it would make it perhaps a little less dependent on like, hey, Ronda Rousey quickly needs to come back and, and jump back into the mix here uh, to keep the thing from completely falling apart. It just – it makes it seem like there's a little more action, a little more competitiveness, a little more parity going on there, uh, which wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. Although I got to say I'm not sure I see it happening like that. Misha Tate should win this fight. She's been pretty hard to beat lately. She's been finding a way to win. That's right. Say. Well, the and, sports cliche about Misha Tate is that she finds a way to win. Well, and I think if you give her five rounds to work, that only plays to her advantage. That's kind of her style. Yes, indeed. Last question this week comes to us from Merlin Todd, who I assume is a magician or wizard of some sort. He writes, guys, I keep trying to think of ways Diego Sanchez versus Joe Lausen might let me down. I keep coming up empty. Am I setting myself up to be underwhelmed and overhyped? 
Now, it does seem like a fight that was put together purely for for highlight purposes. Yep, this is your FightPass.com main event before the actual television broadcast card of UFC 200 kicks off. And, uh, yeah, man, Joe Lauzen versus Diego Sanchez is a surefire crowd pleaser. And as we know, those fights often turn out to be stinkers. Although this one, I mean, here I go. I might as well just break a goddamn mirror on the on the floor, thus dooming us to seven years of bad luck. This one seems like it could be impervious to that. Here's one way that it could be an exciting fight, or at least uh, an action-packed fight, and still be a downer in the end, is if Joe Lozon goes out there and puts down just a depressing beating on Diego Sanchez, who has and, taken a lot of damage over the years. And then Diego Sanchez wins the split decision? Is that <laughs> what you're going to say? <laughs> Don't act like it can't happen. No, but I hear what you're saying, and like that you kind of uh, anticipated what I was going to say. I feel like the only possible way that this fight underwhelms aside from someone coming in with an undisclosed injury and just not being a hundred percent is Diego Sanchez kind of being at the end of the ride. As far as we all know, in terms of his UFC career, uh, two and three in his last five dating back to, to 2013, October of 2013. Uh, and, and, you know, the wins over Jim Miller and Ross Pearson, uh, especially that Ross Pearson one. Yeah. We look askance at that, <laughs> at that outcome. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Diego Sanchez just might not have the goods anymore. But, I mean, Diego Sanchez is a dude we're going to give the benefit of the doubt, at least in terms of bringing the action. Also, if, imagine that I could go back in time to tell you at the time when you were sitting in a, I believe, Radio City Music Hall watching UFC 100. Yes, my future wife alongside, <laughs> alongside me for that. What if I could go back and tell you that... Come UFC 200, Diego Sanchez uh, is going to be in the house uh, still doing the damn thing in the UFC. Would you have believed that? I probably would have been more surprised if you would have told me Brock Lesnar was still going to be doing it or that he would be returning from a long absence. But, you know, Diego Sanchez, much like Chris Lieben, who once told me he ain't going to become an architect anytime soon, has been one of those guys who always seemed like he was just going to be a lifer. And clearly, as the first ever Ultimate Fighter, uh, he's a he's a guy who kind of has perhaps a lifetime contract in the UFC, uh, and uh, you know, a guy that I would figure would stick around. I feel like if you looked at that Ultimate Fighter cast and you were like, "Who's going to be the last guy hanging around here?" Diego Sanchez would have been a pretty solid pick. Yeah. Although back in those days, he was kind of a spring chicken. Yeah. So. Okay, I say I go back to the Radio City Music Hall. Mm -hmm. I tell you three things, and you have to choose which one is, at the time would have seemed the least plausible to Chad Dundas. One, that uh, Diego Sanchez would still be there at UFC 200. Okay. Two, that not only would Mark Hunt be there, he would be kind of an awesome MMA fighter. Okay, yeah, well, this one's going to be hard to beat. Or three, the woman sitting next to you, uh, you guys would would marry and and begin a, a family of wailing children. Well, that one was kind of in the bag by that point. Uh, we didn't know about the children yet. Uh, I would give Mark Hunt, definitely. Mark yeah. Hunt's personal story, uh, more Cinderella style than my own. <laughs> Let's just put it that <laughs> Your way. Your story's not over, man. That's true. It could still get pretty Cinderella-y up here. It could get really bad and then get great again. And you're still, you're, when you think about how much princess crap it now exists in both of our houses, mm -hmm. you could kind of say that yours is a bit of a Cinderella yeah. story. Both of our houses are lousy with princess crap. Yeah. 
Anyway, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll put you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss when we're not recording the podcast from Tuesday through Friday. It's always something, I tell you what. Uh, it's short. It's informative. We try to make it funny. We think you'll like it. If you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, an awful lot of water has flowed under the proverbial bridge of John Jones and Daniel Cormier since the first time they fought at UFC 182 in January of 2015, which seems like 10 years ago. Uh, John Jones obviously tested positive for uh, what they call drugs of abuse. Uh, we found out about it in, in the fallout from this fight. Uh, a few months later, he was turning himself into the Albuquerque PD on hit-and-run charges, getting stripped of his light heavyweight title by the UFC, suspended indefinitely, which turned out to be more like six months. And then uh, Daniel Cormier went out there and won the vacant light heavyweight championship from Anthony Johnson at UFC 187, uh, defended it against Alexander Gustafson at UFC 192. John Jones returned with sort of a tepid performance against Ovin St. Prue, and here we are about ready to do the damn thing all over again. I guess the most obvious question, Ben, any reason to think that Daniel Cormier has a better chance to defeat the interim champion, John Jones, in this fight? Well, it seems like one of the things Daniel Cormier is hanging his hat on, or at least using to get under John Jones's skin, is the idea that John Jones's uh, past with drugs of abuse may have taken a toll on his fighting ability. Have you seen that line that he's been kind of trotting out recently? No, but that's a good one. Basically, like that, if you're going to say something, you might as well say that, I guess. He called him like a 28-year-old middle-aged man or something, that basically he has been aged by his, his hard-partying lifestyle, and that this has taken away from his performances in the cage, and the Ovin St. Prue fight was proof of that. Now, hmm. I can't tell if that is something Daniel Cormier believes. Or if that is something he's just using as a talking point to, to get at John Jones and needle him on these conference calls and during the pre-fight media stuff, uh, a way to kind of make some headlines, but also, uh, you know, maybe just annoy the guy. Or does Daniel Cormier really think, I mean, I guess you got to tell yourself something. Do you think that the way you're going to beat him is that the other guy, you know, left his best stuff on the dance floor, so to speak? Yeah, it's pretty impossible to know what either of these two guys actually believe, especially about the other one headed into this second fight. Uh, have you seen the Daniel Cormier Wikipedia photo these days where he looks like he's just disappearing inside a, a, a Navy blazer? Yeah, Where have you gone, Daniel Cormier? Just looking svelte as a motherfucker in it, this picture. It does, though. It also has the the effect of looking like he's trying on a sports coat at Men's Warehouse. Yeah, like his dad. His dad lent him that. Like, <laughs> you know, his uncle, somebody. Or he put. A, yeah, he tried it on at Men's Warehouse. Uh, 
You know what is interesting to me, and I wrote a thing on Bleacher Report this week along with Mike Chiapetta, and he actually brought up this point, which I thought was an interesting one, uh, that John Jones, at least in a few recent interviews, has seemingly tried to downplay the bad blood between Daniel Cormier and himself, saying that the hatred he once felt for Daniel Cormier is on the wane a little bit, that it's cooled. Uh, and maybe that's just natural, given that these guys seemingly have been enemies since they were children, uh, and their first fight was a decade and a half ago. Uh, but but Chiapetta made the point that he thinks that it's it's a, a tactical decision by John Jones because in uh, you know previous blood feuds that he's had, like the one he had against Rashad Evans leading up to UFC 145, uh, Jones has not fought as well or has not been uh, the the quite the uh, the tac- the technical master that he was in some of his other fights, and so Chiapetta was trying to make the case that perhaps Jones is dis- distancing himself from this feud so he can be a little bit more analytical and a little bit more dispassionate about his preparations and therefore turn in a better performance. You know, that might be smart. I, I don't know if you can say there was too much wrong with his performance against Rashad Evans. He, no, he it's a John a Jones performance, so you look down your nose about it because it went the distance. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, and I... I can understand why that might be a sound strategy for him uh, going into this fight, uh, just not to get caught up in that same stuff again. I also, though, and I, I wrote about this a little bit, watching him during that media scrum in Los Angeles last week, where a bunch of reporters were there, and he said almost the exact same stuff about Daniel Cormier uh, that George St. Pierre said about Josh Koscheck before their second fight. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if you remember that comment that GSP made. We've talked about it on the podcast because it was like he was just looking into the damn future uh, when he said how you know he already has one win over Josh Koscheck. When he beats him again, it's going to be a long way back to the title, uh, maybe never again. And Josh Koscheck is going to have to rethink his whole life, basically. Uh, and I think it ends with the awesome GSP quote that um, once he beats him again, he's never going to. He's not going to think about him anymore. It's going to be a long, long time uh, before he ever has to talk about Josh Koscheck again. He's going to be very happy. And I do remember that. And, it, seems and like, it was prescient. Yeah. And that's, you know, he, Josh Koscheck lost that fight. I think he won two more and then he lost like five straight uh, on his way out of the UFC. And with, and John Jones said a similar thing about Daniel Cormier that there's a lot of pressure on this, on him for this fight because if he loses, he's over is what John Jones said. And it will be, you know, people will not really remember Daniel Cormier as the UFC light heavyweight champion if he loses this fight, even though. He legitimately won a actual, not interim, but actual UFC light heavyweight title bout. Took that belt. Uh, you know that's his now. He gets to, he gets to call that his own. But if he loses this here, in people's memories, I don't think it will be like, oh yeah. And then I remember when Daniel Cormier was UFC light heavyweight champion. It will just seem like a short, non-sport related blip in the John Jones era of dominance. And that is a lot of pressure for Daniel Cormier, especially at his age. It would seem unlikely that he would get another light heavyweight title shot unless something weird happens, which it totally could, or he'd have to go up to heavyweight or, you know, it would just kind of seem like that would be the kind of the end of the line for him as far as titles go. Yeah. I think we've talked about this on the podcast before and knowing what we know about Daniel Cormier, the competitor, clearly I think, everyone believes that Daniel Cormier is coming into this fight believing that he's going to win or believing that he has a very good chance to win uh, just because that's what you do if you're an athlete at this level. I also think it's a legitimate 
possibility that Daniel Cormier at 37 years old knows that this is kind of the last go round for him in his athletic career. He said from the beginning, what he thinks will happen is that he will beat John Jones here and they will fight a third time, which, uh, is one of the things that makes me think not only is he thinking about legacy here, but he's like, okay, this one and the next one, maybe the last fights in my career, let's get this money. Uh, which I don't begrudge him for. That's nope. just, uh, uh, you know, completely pragmatic way to go about it. Uh, and, and, uh, I think is, is, is fine if Daniel Cormier is, is thinking about it that way. Clearly he's a super smart guy and a guy who I think is self-conscious and self, uh, you know, aware enough to place himself in time, place his career in time and knowing what's next. Uh, one thing about Daniel Cormier, and maybe we can talk about this a little bit as this round goes on, that kind of makes me feel bad is that this victory over Anthony Johnson at UFC 187, I would say is a textbook Daniel Cormier victory. Uh, Clearly, he faced some adversity early on where he caught a hot one from Anthony Johnson and then came back and pretty much just broke Anthony Johnson by the third round, ended up winning by a rear naked choke. Uh, you know, wins the title, has not been a bad light heavyweight champion for the UFC. He had a damn instant awesome classic Gustafson, yeah. against Alexander Gustafson at UFC 192, even though very few people uh, paid to watch it. Uh, it just seems like this whole Daniel Cormier title reign from start to now potentially finish at UFC 200 is totally Daniel Cormier style, which makes me feel bad, right? Because like, uh, he's always been almost the best yeah. and has been kind of second place his entire career. Uh, and as an additional wrinkle, which I don't know is if it's surprising, but I think is, is, you know, telling about the way that this sports opera, the sport operates is that he somehow has like lost his, his, uh, status as a fan favorite by coming in and winning the vacant light heavyweight title, which people view as, as a uh, bunk, which is another thing that kind of makes me feel bad, but an interesting, I think a reflection on the way that, that a lot of people view this sport, that Daniel Cormier is now, at least in some people's mind, the villain here and John Jones, the, the good guy. Well, he, but he's the good guy, bad guy. John Jones is kind of an anti-hero. Sure. Yeah. I would which, go for that. But yeah. like people like, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that there's an air about this fight where people are like, John Jones is going to come back and get what's rightfully his. Yeah, well, and I don't know if you follow Daniel Cormier on Instagram as I do, but it's like it doesn't matter what he posts on Instagram. There will be somebody immediately commenting, John Jones is going to whip your ass, take that belt back, or you're not the real champion. Like there is that that real uh, undercurrent of like outrage over the situation and through no fault of Daniel Cormier's. Like, I think his take on it was probably the, for one thing, it was, again, a classic Daniel Cormier and classic wrestler guy move to just be like, well, John Jones disqualified himself. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's not my fault. I just disqualified himself from competition. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel Cormier talks about these fights a lot as competitions, which is another awesome wrestler guy way to go about it. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, you can't really disagree with how, like, how he has approached that, uh, how he has explained that situation like are you the champion well yeah you're the champion because the other guy disqualified himself from competition so, and you came in there and you won all your all your matches after that that's right if the Stick guy the you're podium. supposed to wrestle you sh can't show up to the tournament because his grades weren't good enough you still win the the, tur the tournament right you still stay champion yeah that's right <laughs> you're still stay champ so john jones had this performance against Ovin saint Prue, which was again not up to maybe john jones's is 
at least maybe what we expected from him because again it went the distance even though he was trying to pull out some of his his tricks out of the bag uh you could probably blame a lot of it on Ovin St. Prue for going out there and not really doing anything you could probably blame some of it on ring rust because it was the first time in a little bit over a year since John Jones had been in the cage. But if the if the John Jones who fought Ovin St. Prue shows up to fight Daniel Cormier, Daniel Cormier can win this, right? Yeah, well, and it's definitely never out of the realm of possibility that Daniel Cormier could win this. Although, did you hear that John Jones has stopped the powerlifting after that Ovin St. Prue fight? I'm not surprised. Decided that maybe that wasn't a good idea. We heard Greg Jackson, the audio from the corner, immediately as the fight ended, Greg Jackson saying something about, I told you so on the powerlifting thing. Uh, so it does seem like as good a time as it might have been to fight John Jones a few months back, it, that, that window has now closed. Another, dare I say it, kind of Daniel Cormier style thing to have happen. Yeah. Like he didn't get to fight John Jones on that night when he was supposed to, when maybe John Jones showed up a little bit overly power lifted. Yeah. Well, yeah, and he would have had a much better chance, I think, against that John Jones. And again, we won't know for sure until we actually see him in there, but it seems like everything is kind of going John Jones's way here. Like he got that fight against the Open St. Prue as kind of a warm up uh, to help him get back in the groove, help him see what he needed to change after his, his layoff. Uh, now he gets Daniel Cormier again, and it there's, it's hard for me to really find a good reason why the outcome of this one will be significantly different. Yeah, I agree. Although we should say for the record before we end this round, Daniel Cormier is the UFC light heavyweight champion, despite the fact that almost every time we've discussed this fight leading up to it, we have said the opposite. I don't think you can blame us. I don't blame us. Thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad to know that. Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben, and then we will move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, Chad, you mentioned it a little bit when you were introducing the rounds, but I'm sitting there this morning. I'm drinking my coffee. I'm perusing the internet. I go to ESPN.com, and what do I see? Oh, I know what you saw. I see Conor McGregor with his ass hanging out. The bare ass of Conor McGregor. Right there over your morning cup of joe, which frankly is one of the few drawbacks of living in the one true time zone. You fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding Can me? Can I get a trigger warning or some shit on this? <laughs> Although it did provide an opportunity for my man, the best social media user in the UFC, the Black Beast, Derek Lewis, who, if you haven't already seen it at the time you listen to this, go ahead and check out my Twitter account because I have retweeted it. Wait a second, you're telling people to check out your Twitter account to see Derek Lewis's well, comic his, masterpiece? His is kind of janky over it's there. It's kind of complicated to get to his. It's like the beast underscore UFC. It's a weird... Yeah, no one would ever figure that out. Anyway, you just you had to know it was only going to be a matter of time until somebody photoshopped Ito Portal touching <laughs> Conor McGregor's butt. It's just so perfect. Uh, yeah, we talked about this before we started, man. I would love to know. And, I, you know, we will eventually find out. But can you imagine the reaction from the 209? <laughs> like, in, I'm, I assume the way I imagine it, Diaz is in there training. Somebody brings the body issue in and just, like, tosses it on the mat so everyone can see it. <laughs> I just I, I just imagine both Diaz brothers, like, looking confused, then looking sad, and then saying in unison, the fuck? 
Exactly. That's exactly how it is going to go down. Well, Ben, my are you fucking kidding me? Also social media related this week. Uh, I assume you probably saw this, maybe saw the follow up thread on Reddit after it happened that uh, a UFC fan who kind of uh, is an amateur poster artist uh, posted his his fan mock up for a UFC 200 poster. Didn't didn't tag Dana White or anything in the in the tweet. I don't think at the UFC boss saw it and and followed up with a one word reply, which was horrible. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? This guy's out here looking at fan art, calling it horrible. What a guy! It said on the Reddit thread that maybe they had beef in the past that they had they had gotten crossways on Twitter. Dana White and this guy, anonymous UFC fan. And and as was pointed out in the thread, Dana remembers. <laughs> Still, man, come on. Are you fucking kidding me? Oh, you can see Telling some fan that his poster is horrible. New owners absolutely would not want to lose that guy. He has such a, such a magic touch with the people. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, I have a confession to make. Okay, good. Finally. How long has it been since your last confession, my son? I am ashamed of how ridiculously excited I now am to see Brock Lesnar versus Mark Hunt. I feel like a, I feel like a Mark. I'll tell you that right now. Now, like, did, has your excitement level changed from last week? Because you've been pretty excited all all along. I I don't it's know reaching what it is. a fever pitch at this point. It has reached an absolute fever pitch. You put your ear to the ground and you can feel the thunder, the I, approaching thunder. I feel like it's a combination of the nostalgia that Brock Lesnar brings, where he reminds you of a, a different time in MMA, and he just kind of shows up out of nowhere saying he's going to have a fight and then disappear back to nowhere, which, as far as I'm concerned, pro wrestling might as well be nowhere because I don't watch it. Uh, and then that... Where where he is meeting a a Mark Mark Hunt at like this perfect inter intersection where Mark Hunt has had this great career renaissance uh, and has just not gave a fuck his way to an iconic position within the UFC's heavyweight division and now he's going to go in there and possibly knock Brock Lesnar's big square head right off his shoulders um, or maybe get taken down and absolutely mauled but. Man, I would not miss this shit for anything, and I, I'm kind of embarrassed by that. Yeah, well, it does really uh, reiterate to you the value of Brock Lesnar, right? It does. Because here's a dude we have not seen in like four and a half years, a guy who is 38 years old and uh, as of this recording, exactly one week removed from turning 39, Brock Lesnar turns 39 on July 12th, coincidentally the same day the champion of the world by Chad Dundas is released oh, in bookstores. Good. Available Thank you for reminding everywhere us. fine books are sold. And so we have no idea what Brock Lesnar is going to bring. He has been 
MIA since he disappeared. You and I, we joked about this off air. I can't remember if we made this joke on the podcast, but it, you can totally imagine Brock Lesnar not paying attention to MMA at all since 2010, 2011. And when they offered him Mark Hunt being like, oh, yeah, that guy can't beat anybody. That guy I'll take, sucks. I'll take Mark Hunt. No yeah. problem. So, yeah, a lot of unknowns for Brock Lesnar. Uh, also, I think as we talked about last week, pretty much a perfect matchmaking job by Joe Silva and Sean Shelby, uh, maybe partially out of necessity, but also we must assume partially out of genius to match enormous ripped heelish Brock Lesnar against roly poly fan favorite by any means necessary Mark Hunt. And it just feels like a fight between the pro wrestling fanboy side of the MMA soul and the just like dude who seems like he might have come straight off a bar stool uh, and is a lifelong martial artist side of the MMA fan soul. It's just so perfect. It really is. And yet it's also a fight that means nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing, especially depending on what Brock Lesnar does afterwards. At, as of this recording, Mark Hunt going off as the slight favorite here. He's about minus 170 uh, across the board and Brock Lesnar about plus 150. So, uh, you know, not a ton of money to be made on the odds here, calling it fairly close. But some of that has got to be just because we have no idea what to expect from Brock Lesnar. You know, as we talked about on the show, uh, <clears throat> the first time we talked about this fight, he's going to get uh, 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 a waiver from the UFC on, on drug testing, on having to sit out four months to, to return from retirement. Uh, he's been drug tested since he signed his UFC contract, but was not. We have no idea what what was going on with him when he was over in WWE for the last, you know, handful of years. He's a white boy and he's jacked. Get over it. That, Why does he always bring up how he's white whenever people ask him about that? Wasn't that particular quote? Like kind of a, uh, I guess it was just, I don't know why we would expect any different, but it was to me like a, the ringing of a bell as though to sound like, yep, nothing has changed with Brock Lesnar. <laughs> he is still back here saying the same weird stuff he said before. And it is, I agree, extremely weird that Brock Lesnar always uh, brings race into the equation when anyone asks him about his physique. And no one ever, no one else is, seems to be headed that direction with the comment. no. It is the, the, I dare I say, Brock Lesnar's uh, ethnic makeup has no, nothing to do with the fact that we look at him and think, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't get that part. But yeah, you know, the other thing that made me uh, have the same kind of the realization was when uh, somebody was asking him about uh, Stephanie McMahon of the WWE, her comments about, you know, not really supporting Brock Lesnar's uh, return to the UFC. And him immediately going straight, I don't give a shit what she says. And you're like, man, employee of the month Brock Lesnar over here, just not really not really out there to make too many friends, it seems. It, Same yeah. old guy ever always was. I mean, it does kind of seem even now like Brock Lesnar is not anyone's best friend and yet is a guy who enjoys such enormous popularity or at least such an, he's such an enormous draw uh, that he can still write his own ticket despite the fact uh, that he, he historically has charged around acting like a jerk, uh, which I guess in the same way, Daniel Cormier's light heavyweight title reign is indicative of the Daniel Cormier story. Like it's hard to sum up Brock Lesnar better than that. Yeah. Like storms around acting like a jerk and is still, uh, has every business opportunity open to him because he is an enormous 
muscle-bound freak who is a once-in-a-generation athlete at the in the heavyweight division. And can talk about how he is not doing this for the fans and does not give a shit what fans think, and yet the only reason he gets the opportunity to do this is because so many fans are interested in him and want to see him. Do you think he is still a, a, an enormous draw? Do you think he did drives pay-per-view sales the way that he did five years ago? I don't know if it's exactly the way that he did five years ago, but I definitely think that he's a huge pay-per-view draw. And I think I think John Jones made some kind of comment, I think, on Instagram or on uh, Twitter, and he's totally right, where somebody asked him, like, hey, what did you think about Brock Lesnar being added to this card? And he said, I just thought about how many more millions of dollars that's going to make me. Just uh, totally true. I mean, he you can argue if he's exactly as powerful a draw as he was back then or not, but... Come on, you know this draw. This gets a whole lot of people who probably were going to skip this card to pony up the money and pay for it. Yeah, uh, let's talk about the actual fight here for a minute. Um, in addition to all the the stuff about this being an awesome matchmaking job that we talked about a few minutes ago, you have to add purely stylistically because Brock Lesnar obviously comes from an NCAA national championship wrestling background, uh, and Mark Hunt comes from the exact opposite, uh, uh, a world champion kickboxer uh brock lesnar is a guy who doesn't like to get hit uh mark hunt is a guy who clearly would like to keep the the fight standing i've said it before in the past i feel like uh even though the the groundswell of opinion after this fight was announced was that as you said mark hunt is going to knock brock lesnar's big square head off his shoulders if brock lesnar shows up with the same athletic gifts that he had the first time he ran roughshod over the ufc heavyweight division uh, I think he's got a chance here. I could see him taking uh, Mark Hunt down and 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 maybe even tapping him out with some silly uh, day one submission, you know, arm he, triangle choke, side choke. He could definitely same uh, way Shane Carwin got did. Yeah, well, he could he could definitely win this fight. Just like you said, uh, based on wrestling ability and power and athleticism alone, that that right there gives him a chance. You get Mark Hunt down. Uh, and again, though, Mark Hunt's takedown defense has gotten much, much better over the years. Uh, but you take him down and start dropping those engine block fists that he has on him. And yeah, you could see that fight getting stopped that way. Uh, what I wonder, though, is if you're a guy like Brock Lesnar, who, like you said, a week away from his 39th birthday, and you've relied so much on natural athleticism mm-hmm. and strength and power and mm-hmm. everything over technique, uh, for your brief MMA career, then you went back to pro wrestling where that kind of stuff, you know, it didn't really matter so much because it was in the script who was going to win that night. It makes me wonder, there's got to be some point when you show up relying on that athleticism you've always had and it's just not there in the same amounts that it always has been. And if there's a time for that to happen, it could be like your first fight in a long time uh, and against the kind of dude who can knock you into the dark lands. For sure. And, you know, unlike a wrestler like Randy Couture, and I guess maybe even unlike a wrestler like Chael Sonnen, who, uh, you know, had some of the better MMA takedowns in the, in the history of the sport, uh, and was able to keep fighting into his, into his late thirties. Uh, Brock Lesnar's style is one that I don't know that it ages particularly well because he is going out there and relying on his quickness. Uh, and his ability to land a blast double and get you get you down. Uh, and I think as we talked about before, we we all expect a gong and dash here from Brock Lesnar that he will come out and immediately try to take Mark Hunt down. Uh, and that's not a style that you see guys 
you know, go into their late thirties and early forties have success. Like Chael Sonnen is kind of the exception to the rule as a guy whose takedowns were so good that he could go out there and just take you down without even bothering to to set it up. He could just shoot on you and, and land it. Uh, does Brock Lesnar retain that sort of ability? We shall see, which is one of the reasons we're all stoked about this fight. Yeah. Well, and I, so I think also one of the reasons you're stoked about this fight is like you said, when you match up a guy who, who the big knock on him was that he didn't like getting hit in the face against the guy who really likes to hit people in the face and excels at it. Uh, it just seems like a great, fascinating test of how those two things are going to play out. Also, I think one of the things that I've been reminded of, we talked about, you know, that seeing Brock Lesnar in the, the media and doing interviews and stuff reminds you how he hasn't changed. I think you were the one who pointed out once how Brock Lesnar does the, uh, a classic pro athlete move of acting like, any question that asks him to consider any kind of complex or even just fairly complex idea, acting like he can't believe how dumb all the questions are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know what? He's actually been, I've seen a little bit of his media stuff. I saw his interview with Dan Lebetard on, on highly questionable. Uh, and he was like by Brock Lesnar standards, at least in that interview, extremely gregarious and was like kind of, uh, seemed like he was at least halfway pleased to be here, to be back. Uh, what about this, Ben? You know, I think we both agree that Lesnar has a shot, but the way to bet if you're, if you got some money you never want to see again is to probably put it down on Mark Hunt. Let's say Brock Lesnar loses this, uh, via first round knockout or first round TKO. That would be his third in a row. Uh, and let's say he, uh, he ships back off to the WWE and is, is not seen again in, in the octagon. How is he remembered, do you think, as a mixed martial arts fighter? As a strange and fascinating phenomenon, like a comet that just passed through the sky and we all oohed and awed at it and then it was gone uh, and we all remembered. Wasn't that weird? I think that's how he's remembered. Yeah, probably pretty close. A comet with Brock Lesnar's face and haircut. Uh, you know, I don't already kind of combatish kind of comet like. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think you're right about that. I also don't want to sell the guy short. I just want to make sure that I slip in that the stuff that Brock Lesnar accomplished in the UFC heavyweight division back in 2009, 2010 is remarkable considering the complete lack of MMA training that he had or not MMA training, but MMA experience back when he came in and fought Heath Herring and, and then fought Randy Couture for the title at UFC 91 and just his fourth professional MMA fight and won the damn thing. Uh, so yeah, Brock Lesnar will likely be remembered as uh, a miraculous comet that signaled uh, a very special time in all of our lives. Uh, but I hope he's also remembered as a dude who accomplished amazing things considering uh, his, his comparably small amount of uh, experience. Anything else you want to say about Bork Laser before uh, we see him go out there and fight the Super Samoan? Beware the dark lands. Doesn't sound like a nice place to visit. No, it doesn't. You could totally see Mark Hunt doing that, the Roy Nelson-style knockout, where he punches a dude and he's just like, yep, that's going to work. If Mark Hunt walk-off KOs Brock Lesnar, Mark Hunt is an instant legend. Mark Hunt the god. Jeez, imagine that. Mark Hunt etching his name in, in the stone tablet of MMA history. Whew. All right, well, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three.
Well, Ben, if you're going to have a featherweight division that exists absent the supple, tanned backside of Conor McGregor, and you're going to run one back in the career of Jose Aldo da Silva Oliveira Jr., it might as well be Frankie Edgar, right? Might as well. Because these guys went out there the first time that they fought, and at least... Frankie Edgar made it look competitive back at UFC 156. He eventually conceded a, a competitive but clear-cut unanimous decision to Jose Aldo. But, you know, if you look around the featherweight division, I don't know that there are a lot of people out there that we feel like could put up the kind of fight against Jose Aldo that Frankie Edgar might be able to, assuming both these guys head into this fight as, a ver- you know, the former versions of themselves and not some lesser version. Well, and for me, that's the big question with Jose Aldo, that after that that knockout loss to Conor McGregor, what did that do to him, uh, especially just psychologically? Because uh, so much of Jose Aldo seemed built on this aura of invincibility and that he could kind of toy with guys and coast late in fights on guys when he got tired just because he seemed like he was so good and he knew it. Uh, and now after something like that happens... You could go a lot of different ways mentally, and it'll be interesting to see which way he went, especially to take on a guy like Frankie Edgar, who, as we discussed last week, really on a hot streak right now, uh, really uh, has reached kind of what seems like a a pinnacle for him, uh, and for him to get this shot at Jose Aldo now seems like the perfect timing for him, both in terms of where Aldo is at and in terms of where he's at. Yeah, and and just as Brock Lesnar heads into his fight a week before his 39th birthday, it is still, every single time I look, shocks me that Jose Aldo is only 29 years old. Like, I expect him to just have gotten much older since the last time I looked at his Wikipedia page. Nope, still the same age he's always been, turns 30 in September. And the thing about this knockout at the hands of Conor McGregor at UFC 194, it wasn't really that long ago. Nope. We have a tendency to think about, or at least I do, since you know the UFC schedule is so fast and furious. Like I said about Jones and Cormier, seeming like it happened a decade and a half ago. I like to think about this Conor McGregor Jose Aldo fight as though it happened a long time ago, but it actually happened less than seven months ago. You know, December twelfth, two thousand fifteen. Uh, so you know, as we've said about Chad Mendez in the wake of his own uh, knockout loss to Conor McGregor. Is this the kind of thing where we wonder if Jose Aldo should still be cooling his heels somewhere, making sure that, uh, that he's fully recovered before he's thrust back into action? Yeah. I mean, I could see making uh, a strong argument for that. I also think that there's gotta be some part of him, especially because of the nature of that loss that was really dying to get out there and, you know, put something between himself and that, uh, just to remind everybody and to prove again to himself uh, what kind of fighter he is. But man, Frankie Edgar is a tough test right now for absolutely anybody. He sure is, and he has not lost since that that uh, featherweight title loss to Jose Aldo in 2013. He's won five straight fights, uh, including that sad-ass one against BJ Penn uh, back in July of 2014, and then uh, wins over Cub Swanson, Uriah Faber, and Chad Mendez. Uh, and like we said, that first round KO of Chad Mendez uh, at the Ultimate Fighter finale that neither of them were involved in. Uh, but in December of 2015, that was the one where we watched Chad Mendez get knocked out again. And we wondered, you know, did Chad Mendez rush back? Uh, it was also the one where afterwards action. Frankie Edgar was promised anything he wanted. You remember mm. that? Yeah. 
Now, here's my question about this fight for you. Does this feel to you like the UFC featherweight championship fight? Yes. I think that these dudes are probably fighting for the UFC featherweight title, even though we're going to hang the interim tag around their neck. I mean, I see what you're getting at there, that Conor McGregor, until he, until someone can prove otherwise, is probably going to feel like the best 145-pound fighter on the planet. But I continue to operate under the assumption that he's not going back to that weight unless he absolutely has to. I think despite the fact that he is too cagey and media savvy to say that out loud in front of anyone, you know, all signs point to the fact that John Kavanaugh doesn't want him to make that weight anymore. I think Conor McGregor thinks that the weight cut is hard. I think that Conor McGregor knows that the big time Nate Diaz style matchups, the more lucrative matchups exist at, at higher weight classes all the way up to 170 at this point. Uh, and, and so a lot of what happens to the, to the future of Conor McGregor will obviously be decided when he fights Nate Diaz for a second time. Uh, if he wins that fight, I think you got a, a better chance of seeing the second coming of, uh, of Jesus Christ than Conor McGregor going back down to featherweight. Uh, if he loses, maybe the UFC can twist his arm a little bit and get him back down to 145. Who knows? But I'm going to go ahead and say the winner of Jose Aldo versus Frankie Edgar eventually loses that interim tag and becomes the UFC featherweight champion outright. Yeah, that's see, that's what makes it a tricky thing for me is it seems like it depends on or how much does it depend on whether Conor McGregor ever has any intention of going back there because – We've seen stranger things happen. Uh, it would not be completely out of the realm of possibility, especially if he loses to Nate Diaz again, for uh, the UFC to convince him, hey, make the weight cut one more time at least. Go back down there and at least uh, help us get some kind of closure on the whole situation. Or just say once and for all that you're never going back there and everybody can stop thinking about it. Because I, it seems like in a lot of different ways, even though this does feel like Absolutely, these are two of the best featherweights in the world. You still have that doubt in your mind of, but is the best featherweight up at welterweight? Right. Yeah, and we're probably we will have that doubt in our mind, I suppose, especially considering the shocking, the shocking way that Conor McGregor knocked out Jose Aldo the first time they met. Uh, are you surprised to learn that Frankie Edgar is the slight favorite here? I am a little bit surprised yeah. to learn that. I thought I was really going out on a limb and picking him on our our MMA junkie staff picks. Mostly, it's a pick em. Uh, but uh, you, there's some sites where you can get Jose Aldo at plus 102, Frankie Edgar at minus 115, so very close in the odds. But uh, I'm a little bit surprised considering that Jose Aldo comes into this fight with a win already over Frankie Edgar. But again, Frankie Edgar's streaking, and Jose Aldo returns with uh, a lot of questions about his future and, and how he's going to look in this fight. I would pose to you, Ben, the question that we just asked about Daniel Cormier and uh, your George St. Pierre impression there about Josh Koscheck. I'll what, be very happy. I'll never talk about him again. Right. Pretty good there for kind of kind of fell apart at the end. Yeah. But the first part was, was right on. You want me to go on. back to doing Woody Allen is what you're saying? No, I think we're just we're good with our own voices for here for a while. Uh, what's Frankie Edgar's future if he loses the second fight to Jose Aldo? Um, we know that he's a damn good fighter. But, you know, back-to-back -back losses in, in lightweight championship fights back in 2012 and then the loss to Jose Aldo in a featherweight fight in 2013. If he loses again uh, at 34 years old himself, where does he go from there? My advice would be to just become a straight-up money weight at that point and kind of think of yourself as a, a rover 
who yeah. can go and that is something that he can do. He can go between a couple different divisions. I just I guess I would hope, because I've seen how it plays out so often in the past, that he would not be talked into just cutting down one more division, going down to Bantamweight and trying to reset the clock all over again there. Because I yeah. that just bums me out for some reason. Do you get the impression? I don't know, maybe I'm just maybe I'm just pulling this out of thin air, but I, I would wonder what Frankie Edgar would think about how bullish the UFC is about Frankie Edgar. You know, during his lightweight title title reign, it seemed like he had earned a begrudging respect from management. They 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 seem to take this uh uh well, I think they said he was fighting in the wrong weight class even then when he was champion, but it always seemed like you know, at, at post-fight press conferences, Dana White would adopt this attitude of like, huh, this kid Frankie Edgar, I tell you what, he, he just keeps winning these fights. Uh, maybe he feels a little Rodney Dangerfield at this point. Like you say he could be a money weight, go wherever he wanted to go and make big, big time fights. But it seems like the UFC maybe has been a little bit reluctant to book him those fights. I don't know. I think that uh, Frank Yebuer has just kind of fallen through the cracks in some of these situations. Right. I think that when, when Dana White said, hey, Frank Yebuer is going to get whatever he wants out after knocking out Chad Mendez, I believe that they had the intention to actually make that come true. He believed what he was saying at the time that he said it? <laughs> yes, as, as much as he possibly can. Uh, but it does seem like in just a lot of ways, and sometimes we see this where the guys who are fairly easy to work with for the UFC and are good, solid, dependable guys, sometimes the UFC will take that for granted uh, and get so caught up dealing with all the other people like Conor McGregor who are more difficult but also present a, a greater uh, potential payoff if you can make it all work. And the idea is that, well, okay, Frank Yeager is kind of going to get screwed here, but like Frankie's a good guy. Yeah. He'll he'll be cool about it. Uh, and he usually is, you know, so – I think that that's probably what's happened to him more than anything. I mean, I guess we just talked about where Frankie Edgar would go from here if he loses this. Is it even worse if Jose Aldo loses this for his career? Because, you know, he's coming off that knockout loss to Conor McGregor at UFC 194, as we've talked about. Uh, but Frankie Edgar is a dude that he just beat a few years ago. Uh, not easily, but certainly decisively. If he loses this fight to Frankie Edgar, that seems to me like just more evidence where we can take it and and, and just say, Jose Aldo, not what he used to be. Yeah, uh, which would be just a talk about a precipitous decline. That would be some some real sudden downfall shit, especially uh, since he somehow has not aged more rapidly than you think he ought to. Yeah, maybe if he lost to Frankie Edgar the next day, we would look at his Wikipedia and he'd be 34. Who knows? <laughs> All right, well, uh, let's do just saying stuff unless there's more stuff you want to say about Aldo Edgar heading into this uh, UFC 200 weekend. No, I think I'm good there. All right. Well, Ben, last week we talked about Michael Chandler regaining the Bellator lightweight title. And one of the things we said about whether or not he could be considered an elite lightweight is, you know, without that UFC level competition, uh, it, we kind of just had to use the eye test that there's a lot of guesswork involved in figuring out where dudes like Chandler and guys like the Pitbull brothers, uh, and guys like Andre Korshkov fit into the, to the grander scheme of things. Well, this week, Michael Chandler, uh, I think he was on the MMA hour talking to Ariel Helwani, uh, he 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 laid out what he wants in his future, and I'm I'm just going to read the quote from him here. 
I want the Benson-Henderson fight to happen, Chandler said. He's got a long time left on his contract. He's got a lot of fights left in him. I'm not 100% sure on Josh Thompson, so I would like to fight Josh Thompson next. I'd like to see him, Thompson, healthy, and let's finish what we started because I don't think he has a ton of fights left. So let's just get that Chandler-Thompson fight done and then onward and upward. Uh, so I guess this week I'm just saying from Michael Chandler's uh, future proposed opponents, I think you can kind of take a hint there about what's going on in Bellator and where it fits in in the larger lightweight picture since both of the dudes Michael Chandler wants to fight next are guys that maybe we still think of as UFC lightweights. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, Chad, this week I'm just saying we've talked about a lot of the fights that are scheduled to go down here in International Fight Week, Red Right and Fight Week. But when does Papa Roach hit the stage? That's what I want to know. <laughs> but... We neglected to mention, and I, even until recently, forgot it was even happening, that baby-faced fucking murderer, Du Ho Choi, oh, right. is back in action this week. Uh, he's on the uh, Ultimate Fighter finale card uh, that goes down on, on July 8th here this week, uh, taking on Tiago Tavares. And for those of you who, who maybe are not familiar with, with Du Ho Choi, the Korean Superboy, uh, and maybe you didn't even see him straight up murk Sam Cecilia uh, at that uh, UFC fight night in Seoul uh, back this past November. Go look that one up if you got the fightpass.com or if you just have the internet and can manage to find a clip of it. Because Du Ho Choi, he seems like he could be one of my guys. He seems like he could be a lot of people's guy. I'm just saying. Just saying. Uh yeah, how long do we let a guy be the Korean Superboy before he must become the Korean Superman? You know, this was brought up recently uh, on Twitter because people know my stance on Wonder Man. Du Ho Choi, however, he's 25, Yep, and he looks like he's 12. Okay, so he's got some time he left. He's got a little bit of time. I'm okay. not saying you can run this out indefinitely. Eventually, you will have to become the Korean Superman, which still pretty awesome. Yeah, uh, not bad. But right now, this whole... You know, looks like he is putting down a teddy bear to go inside a cage and fight somebody and then come back and snuggle his teddy bear. That, that gimmick is working right now. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. You know what happens this weekend. UFC 200 on Saturday immediately preceded by two other UFC events. We're going to see the lightweight title fight between Rafael Dos Anjos and Eddie Alvarez. We're going to see the women's strawweight title fight between Joanna Jedjacek and Claudia Gadella. And then we're going to see the UFC 200 supercard with uh, three UFC title fights of various types at various weights. And it's just going to be madness. And we'll be back next week to tell you what happens at all that stuff and talk about it some more. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So you think maybe he gets to be 29 then when we start talking about Korean Superman status? Maybe he gets to be 29 and by then he has a long jagged scar on his <laughs> Or he has grown a beard of some kind. There you go. That would do it. Uh, pointy Fu Manchu. Look at that guy right now and tell me that it wouldn't take him 